In late 2012, Paul Settle was a detective chief inspector in the Metropolitan Police, heading up its paedophile squad. He aspired to be a commander, but just five years later, he was driven into early retirement from the force after suffering a mental breakdown. Paul says that that breakdown was caused by his treatment at the hands of the Met. He says he was shunned after he blew the whistle over their handling of the disastrous Operation Midland Inquiry into claims of VIP sex abuse and murder made by the serial liar Carl Beach, AKA Nick, and a linked inquiry called Operation Vincenti into false allegations of rape made against the former Home Secretary Leon Britton by a woman known as Jane. Both Beach and Jane were supported by former Labour deputy leader Tom Watson. For Paul, Mr Watson's intervention in the Jane rape case was to have fatal consequences for his career. But he has no regrets about speaking out in defence of those falsely accused of VIP abuse. Paul, welcome to the uh, Mail Plus True Crime podcast. You retired from the Metropolitan Police in 2017, uh, many years earlier than you would have planned. You had previously been head of the uh, paedophile squad at Scotland Yard and had taken a stand over how your force reopened an inquiry into claims made against the late former Home Secretary, Lord Britain. What was it that made you take that stand uh, and how costly was it in terms of your own career? Quite simply, I, I was taught, brought up, dragged up when I joined the police to have as great a duty to stand in front of the innocent as prosecute the guilty. And in this case in particular, if you stood back and objectively examined the evidence um, rather than get carried up in the furore and the noise being made by certain politicians and the gullibility of certain police officers, um, if you stood back and examined the evidence completely objectively and did your job, you would see that there was absolutely no grounds whatsoever to interview Lord Britain. So why would you possibly want to start doing something that was unlawful. You were leading the investigation into Lord Britain, and we'll go into more detail about that later in this podcast. But in general terms, you looked at it with your officers for several months or so, concluded there was nothing in it, closed the inquiry, and then following an intervention by Tom Watson, which we'll go into more detail as well a bit later, the inquiry was dramatically reopened and that resulted in Lord Britain dying a suspected uh, rapist before he was properly exonerated. But your decision to close that inquiry, as far as you're concerned, you were hung out to dry, weren't you, by the Metropolitan Police and your career ended, although you were ultimately exonerated. What effect did that have on you mentally? 
it had an incredible effect because what people don't realise is that police officers, their, their integrity, their word, their honesty is a fundamental part of who they are. The pride that they take in their job, the reason that they do their job, the reason that they've agreed to a life of public service is a fundamental part of who they are. And to all of a sudden have that ripped away to be told that you're useless at your job, to be accused of doing things that you clearly have not done and never would do, but nobody will listen. At no point did anybody stop and say, hang on a second, has Paul actually done this? And not only that, being told every other day that you've allegedly done something else wrong and they're coming to get you, it's it's going to have an effect on you. And, and, and sadly it did. And, and as a result, I ended up leaving on medical grounds about three or four years before I should have done. Let's be clear here. I mean, you were effectively a whistleblower, weren't you? Because you were very concerned about the running of the VIP sex abuse inquiry in general terms. I I was hugely concerned about it. The simple fact of the matter is I was given the inquiry to run. I had a, a track record of dealing with politicians, of dealing with the establishment, of dealing with sensitive inquiries. And I just got on with it. And there wasn't any problems. Having looked at it and thought, this isn't this isn't there. This this is actually not an offence of rape. I sent a completely anonymised summary of facts to the CPS and asked them to make a decision based on the facts, and they completely concurred with me. And then it was brought back to the decision making group, the the Gold Group, which oversees the whole investigation. The facts were explained. Everybody agreed. The investigation was halted. And the team was actually commended for the approach it took. And then this was in September. And then the following April, Tom Watson comes wading in with his size 12s. And all hell breaks loose. Let's go back to 2012, Paul, because that was when uh, Tom Watson famously stood up in the House of Commons doing Prime Minister's questions and made this bombshell claim. If it still exists contains clear intelligence of a widespread paedophile ring. One of its members boasts of his links to a senior aide of a former Prime Minister who says he could smuggle indecent images of children from abroad. The leads were not followed up, but if the files still exist, I want to ensure that the Metropolitan Police secure the evidence, re-examine it and investigate clear intelligence suggesting a powerful paedophile network linked to Parliament and Number 10. You were then a senior figure, weren't you, in the Met's paedophile squad, and you had a meeting, didn't you, with Mr Watson? Yeah, what what happened was Tom Watson stood up and said this in Parliament. Everybody was astounded and didn't know what he was talking about. So contact was made with his office, and very quickly it was established what he was referring to. I went down to his office, along with my deputy and and a sergeant, and then Tom Watson turned around and, and said, oh, and I've got all of these, by the way. And there was roughly about 400, 450 various allegations that had come into his office from people alleging that they'd been abused by VIPs. So we took a, a very systematic approach and went away, collated all the allegations. And, you know, there's a lot to be said for not getting carried up in the moment and just starting at the beginning. And that's what we did. 
You mentioned that Tom Watson had more than 400 allegations or bits of intelligence sent to him, which he passed on to you. How would you characterise that evidence in terms of the quality of the accuser and the evidence itself? An awful lot were genuine, and by genuine, I mean that people were genuinely referring them. Um, It could be along the lines of, I once heard a man in a pub say such and such a thing, right through to, yes, this happened to me. There was then a significant amount, I'd say roughly about 50%, that were what I would call anecdotal allegations that were off the internet. That, that had no foundation. It was always, I heard that this happened to a man that maybe went into a pub 20 years ago. There was no victim, no venue, no version of events. It was just purely rumour, anecdote against famous people. Gossip. Let's discuss in more detail the allegation of rape made against Lord Britain, distinguished Tory Home Secretary in the 80s. His widow, Lady Britain, has been on my podcast a few months ago and talked at length about his ordeal and her ordeal. How did that allegation come into you to be investigated? Because his accuser was entitled to anonymity and uh, she was given the name Jane by the website Exaro. How did Jane come across your desk? So what happened was, following Watson's question, etc., Jane, who lives up the country, went into a local station and said, I want to report this that happened to me in 1967. So the allegation got sent into the Met Police, and it was an allegation of adult rape. There was no suggestion that youngsters were involved, tender-aged children or anything like that. It was an allegation of adult rape. Normally, that would sit within what was then sapphire which was the rape command however because lord britain was of interest to us there was no merit in having two separate teams investigating the same person because you'd just end up at cross purposes so i agreed to take on the investigation of adult rape against lord britain that was given the name operation vincenti there was no what, evidence, what, was there, that that was Lord Britain? I think at that time was a, a young barrister in the late 60s. There was yeah. no evidence at all. And there were a lot of holes in her story, weren't there? There were absolutely massive holes from the outset. Identification, she claimed she identified him because there was a certificate stuck on a fridge from the bar. The location of the flat, the, the floor that the flat was on, the tube journey that they took from where they met to where this allegedly happened none of them could be corroborated. We then traced her then flatmates and they all said the same thing. And that was, no, we didn't hang around in parties where Lord Britain was there. So there wasn't one element of the corroboration that you'd use to to strengthen a story that stood up, let alone before you actually looked at the facts. The facts as given by Jane herself when she was given more than one opportunity to, to strengthen her account as much as she could, didn't amount to a rape. She wasn't happy, was she, when you informed her that uh, you weren't going to proceed with your investigation, you know, having looked at it for months, that, that you were going to close the inquiry without interviewing 
uh, Lord Britain. She was very unhappy about that, wasn't she? She was, and you can understand why. She came down to London. It was, I think I described it in my decision log as a challenging meeting because she just sat there with her husband screaming at me for about 45 minutes. There's absolutely no benefit or merit in arguing back with her. So I just I just sat there and, and tried to answer her questions where possible. And, and at the end of the meeting, I explained to her that I'd write to her and I'd explain my decision in writing. And I'd also explain how she could complain or appeal the decision. So I did that and I sent that recorded delivery to her. Of course, she refused to sign for it at the other end, which meant that she, she never received the letter and it was returned to me about three months later. Mm. A week before she came down to London, I went to brief Tom Watson and met with him and I explained fully what the issue with Jane and the allegation was I explained to him that the evidence wasn't there. And what did he say to you? He sat there as normal, was quite affable. So I came away from that meeting. I didn't think there was anything untoward or expecting anything to happen. And then completely out of the blue, two months later, Watson wrote in what I still consider to be an absolutely disgraceful letter that questioned me very personally and took what Jane had said as fact. Uh, I know from my own inquiries uh, over many years that she had a history of making false allegations. I imagine that would have been of concern, you know, to the CPS. But as you say, she went to Tom Watson and Tom Watson wrote to the Director of Public Prosecutions, Alison Saunders, a very scathing letter which was leaked to Exaro, if I remember rightly, and calling for a new inquiry into her allegations and effectively demanding that Lord Britain be quizzed formally about her her dubious rape claims dating back to the yeah, 1960s. Absolutely. I mean, this is the thing that the senior management at the Met failed to grasp, was that the evidence just wasn't there. That's before you consider she had a history of making false allegations. That's before you consider she's a Labour activist that has outwardly said that she despises Lord Britain, etc., etc., and what he stood for and all the rest of it. When that letter Tom Watson wrote to the DPP, Alison Saunders, when that letter surfaced on the Exaro website, Lord Britain, who was terminally ill with cancer in hospital, was called by an officer, and asked to come in for an interview under caution about these rape claims. An extraordinary coincidence, wasn't it? It's a huge coincidence, but I was told in no uncertain terms to have nothing to do with the investigation anymore. So you get a call from what, so a senior officer to say you're out? Yeah, I got a call from a senior officer asking what the decision-making process was regarding no further action in the job, regarding stopping the investigation. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying my best not to be sarcastic or, or a bit trite with him because he was sat in the room when the decision was made and applauded it and, and then told that I was to have nothing whatsoever to do with the investigation. When all they had to do was phone up and say, what happened, Paul? At which point 
I'd have given them an account, at which point I'd have provided them with a copy of the letter that I'd written, at which point I'd have provided them with a, a record of the meeting that I'd taken that had all been timestamped, etc. They just didn't do it. Again, this is a, a, a habit which was to cost them dearly. They were just responding to pressure and not doing the very basics of policing, which is establish the facts and remain objective. You swear an oath of allegiance, don't you, to investigate without fear or favour. But that, Absolutely. Uh, you, I, I suspect very strongly that they were terrified of Tom Watson. He's a powerful politician at the time, and he was wielding a lot of influence, both in terms of Operation Vincenti and Operation Midland, which we'll come on to shortly. Yeah, things have worked out very differently, but, but if you cast your mind back to that time, you were potentially looking at a future prime minister. And, and this is where I think policing has gone wrong writ large. The officers at the yard were more concerned about that than actually doing what they were paid for. And I had a meeting with a very senior officer where he actually said, is it safe for me to meet Tom Watson yet or do we carry on let you deal with him? Let's discuss what happened next then. Vincenti was reopened. Lord Britain gets a call from a senior officer on his mobile while he's uh, recovering from an operation in hospital. And you are taken off the inquiry and basically you didn't have a job. That's correct, isn't it? You didn't have a job. You were frozen out. I I wasn't just taken off Vincenti. As as I've explained, Vincenti was one of many inquiries we've conducted. I was removed from them all. I went in to see my immediate line manager and said, what's happening? And and he sat there and told me how busy it was and how serious it was and all the rest of it. And then, you know, how short of staff they were. And I said, well, what can I do to help? He said, no, you're not allowed to have anything to do with it. How did this affect you mentally? Because you've been given the cold shoulder, weren't you? You know, my, my entire adult life, I've tried to do the right thing. And I've enjoyed doing it, by and large. There's been ups and downs, but but I've enjoyed doing it. I was getting home at night fulfilled and happy because we'd been doing a good job and we'd been, you know, righting a wrong and doing the right thing. And all of a sudden, to go from that to literally being told to sit in an office looking at a wall with zero responsibility... You had a breakdown, didn't you? That's what happened, really. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those things that just just the very notion of going sick as a professional police officer that loved his job was alien to me. I hadn't had any sickness for years, and all of a sudden, my, my world's fallen apart. What was it that's made you that? Was it, was it because you'd been alienated by the force, or what? what was it? I went from a position where, during the Olympics, I was writing briefing notes for the Prime Minister every day. Before that, I was meeting with foreign governments all over the world. Before that, I was in charge of terrorist financing for the UK from a police perspective. You know, it was was important jobs. They were full-on jobs. They were mentally challenging jobs. You were gainfully employed and thinking and doing things for 12, 14 hours a day. And I've always been one of these people that work hard, play hard, get your job done and, and, and live life. And to go from that to being made to sit in a room staring at a wall for six or seven hours is just soul-destroying. And this, you say, and the Met would deny it, no doubt, and I think they have denied it, but your position is that you were sent to Coventry, effectively, because you had made a stand over Lord Britain and stood up for him and the oath of allegiance to the Crown and investigating impartially. 
Absolutely, and and the Met the Met can stand there and come out with some, you know, whiffle waffle. Oh, we don't agree with that. I would counter it by going, okay, give me one example of what you gave him to do then. This is this is a, a mid to senior level manager that's on a substantial wage at the taxpayer's expense. Show me one piece of work that you gave him to do during that period. There isn't one. Meanwhile, Tom Watson got his way, didn't he? Because yeah. the people who took over the inquiry, two of them, Detective Superintendent David Gray and another officer, James Townley, I think his name was, they went to interview Lord Britton. He was very gravely ill. And the interview didn't last very long. And I've written about it in the past. I've seen the paperwork and done a big investigation for the Daily Mail on it. They interviewed him under caution, but didn't ask him a single question about the rape allegation. Instead, they asked him a series of bizarre questions, including whether he had ever owned a horse and if he'd socialised in a certain part of London at the time of the supposed offence. To make matters worse, their tape recording machine didn't work properly. I mean, I don't think it's, uh, it's an exaggeration to say it's an absolute disgrace. And it's just fundamentally wrong. That's before you consider what I said earlier, and that is... The evidence wasn't there. That's before you get into the realms of them doing a, a substandard, pathetic interview that didn't address any of the claims that I, I still hold to this day was unlawful because they exercised the police power in cautioning him. They demanded him to be there. He, he turned up and then they didn't ask him any relevant questions whatsoever. Instead, they went off completely at a tangent well, I think it's important to note here as well, while Tom Watson was uh, putting pressure on the Met over the Vincenti and Jane's uh, rape allegations, he was dealing with Carl Beach. In fact, after Lord Britain died, Mr Watson wrote a column in the uh, the Mirror newspaper uh, repeating the vile sex abuse lies of Carl Beach. He was yeah. putting pressure on the Met in that column to continue their inquiries into Lord Britain, even though he'd only been dead two or three days. And that inquiry, Operation Midland, was gold-commanded by Steve Rodhouse as well. And, my God, they did take those allegations seriously, didn't they? Operation Midland, this supposed murderous paedophile gang involving Sir Edward Heath, Lord Britain, Harvey Proctor, amongst others, they carried that on as well, to the utter shame. Of the Metropolitan Police. When I came when I came back after being sick, the allegations and Nick were just starting to simmer, and I was still included in various briefing notes on email and and so on and so forth. As soon as they realised I was, I got taken off them as well. But I got briefed on the allegations that Nick was saying right at the very beginning, and and straight away I said, "Hang on a second, they are nothing more." than all those allegations that we got right at the beginning off the internet that we can find absolutely no evidence to support. And he's turned them into a script. And, and, I, and I, said, I said at that time, and I stand by it, he is either the most unluckiest man on earth or he's a complete and utter fantasist. He was a powerful player, and, he, and you say he'd come up with his like, greatest hits of Fantasyland allegations, which the Met spent millions and millions of pounds investigating. Yeah, 
but it was it was absolutely despicable behaviour by the Met because the thing is is if you look at Harvey Proctor turning up at Harvey's door and basically telling his boss to kick him out of his house if they're going to take his children into care. It was a friend's child. It was, it, was, it, was a friend, it was a friend's children. It was his, yeah. his employee's children. Yeah. But, but when did, you know, somebody said to me, stop being the Metropolitan Police Force and started becoming the Metrocomical Police Force. And, and, and it's said in jest, but, but there's an element of truth there. When, when did we start behaving like the Gestapo? Can I just say here, because you were exonerated, weren't you, by the Home Affairs Select Committee yeah. in late 2015 as the row over Lord Britain's treatment in particular in relation to Operation Vincenti exploded. The, the committee was very complimentary about you as a senior detective and about the stand you had taken. That must have been a proud moment for you and some vindication. I'll be entirely honest, by that point, I was at my lowest ebb. Um, I'd contemplated suicide several times. I was in a really, really dark place. Quite sort of choked just thinking about it now. But um, leading up to me giving evidence at the Hask, the Metropolitan Police had gone to extraordinary lengths to try and prevent me from doing it. They, they'd wrote a series of letters to the Home Affairs Select Committee going, oh, yeah, you don't, you don't want to hear off him. We'll send you a senior bod. He's not that senior. You don't want to listen to him. All of that by that point, was I was I was a bit sort of ambivalent to in that I, I knew what they were like. But, but they then threatened to reveal the fact that I'd had a breakdown to the Home Affairs Select Committee to try and get rid of my credibility. And that, for me, is just unforgivable. I remember you composed yourself really well, but un you're saying underneath that you're in, in real turmoil. I was, I was in absolute bits. I, I turn up on the TV and he's always composed and he's shaved. I hadn't shaved for about four months before that. I just, I just like, leading up to that, I'd had, I'd had the second most senior officer in the country threaten to tell the world that I was mad and I was a basket case, just so the men could protect themselves from something that they'd done wrong. I want to say here, because I'd known you for several years, I had first met you in 2006, I think, and we were part of a, yeah, a big charity fundraising uh, bike ride. Yeah. Several officers, all approved by the uh, senior officers in the Met at the time. So I knew you then, we'd lost contact for many years, but I was aware about your declining mental health, and I was very concerned about what I was hearing, you know, and the effect that you being true to your oath of office, the effect that that was having on you uh, and really the fact that you were staring at the end of your police career. That was it, wasn't it, really? Despite being yeah, praised I mean, by the Home Affairs Select Committee, your career was effectively over by then. I knew it was over. I mean, quite frankly, I was privileged to work with some truly outstanding people um, from, from junior ranks all the way through to the top level and to see, to see people operating in very, very difficult circumstances and selflessly putting others before themselves day in, day out, because that's what we did. And all of a sudden to just realise that whilst you've been away doing that proper job, the lunatics have taken over the asylum. The people in charge were just not match fit. They were incapable of getting the very, very basics right before they did anything. The first time Steve Rodhouse even bothered himself with me was post on Rike's report where he wanted to reassure me about my career 
Well, by that point, I'd been under the mental health team by a couple of years. I was suicidal. And the first time he put, oh, yeah, come into my office and let me reassure you about your career. Really? So you were accused of, of sort of misconduct, weren't you? And you were the subject of an inquiry by the police watchdog, then known yeah. as the IPCC, now known as the IOPC. And we won't go into the details of the misconduct because they are all unproven and you were exonerated, weren't you? But it was uh, it added pressure to you, no doubt, and, and those allegations were taken seriously by the police watchdog uh, uh, and by the Met. Uh, again, there's a, a constant theme here, and that is... These allegations were made against me. They were unfounded. It doesn't matter. The thing is, they they came for some very, very special people. And the simple fact of the matter is, the Met panicked again and threw it to the IPCC, as it was then. And had they just paused for a second and said, what is the actual allegation? This was allegations of me leaking information that I didn't have access to. And even if it had happened, it happened six months after I'd left. So the thing is, is whilst I fully respect that there needs to be an investigation, there also has to be a quick quality check at the beginning where you go, hang on a second. Who's making this allegation? Oh, that's the same bloke that's made up all the nonsense to start with. You left the police on medical grounds in 2017. Yeah. You said you were hounded out of the police. Do you stand by that? Yes, absolutely. You only have to extrapolate on the on the allegations, on the IPCC investigation. They took two years to clear me. A five-year-old could have looked at that and gone, that couldn't have happened. At the same time as they did that, there were other allegations that had come in because it just seemed to be open hunting season, and they took the same view with me as they did with the allegations against Lord Britain, that they should all be taken over seriously and believed to the nth degree, even though there's no evidence. And I found myself in the position where every week I was getting more complaints and then having finally got rid of them all and after finally being exonerated and after finally the Mets slowly realising, hang on a second, maybe this bloke was just doing his job. I was in a woeful position health-wise, mentally, etc. And the police said, right, we're retiring you. It wasn't my decision. In February, Lord Britain's widow, Lady Britain, spoke at length on this podcast about her and her husband's ordeal at the hands of Carl Beach, and more particularly at the hands of the Metropolitan Police, who took Carl Beach's allegations seriously, and Jane's allegations seriously. The uh, police appear to have a culture which is cover up and flick away. Nobody will take responsibility or say that it was appalling or we're really going to learn from it. We never want this to happen again. I mean, it's, it's partly to do with the culture. The culture is cover-up. Really damning words from a very distinguished woman in her own right. And she also spoke about a lack of moral spine amongst senior officers. Paul, I wondered, do you agree with her conclusions, her assessment about an alleged culture of cover-up at the Metropolitan Police? I think you have to look at the evidence. You have to look at exactly what happened. I was the only one that spoke out. I was sent to Coventry. There was no apology forthcoming. There was no 
sort of efforts to make amends and people just carried on doing exactly what they'd been doing. And it took um, exposure by yourself and other journalists before the Met even considered apologising to her. And there's nothing that I've seen since then that would reassure me that this sort of thing couldn't happen again or indeed that it wouldn't be covered up. There was just this level of ambivalence towards the whole thing. As far as you're concerned, are there a lot of unanswered questions about the VIP paedophile scandal, Operation Midland, and in addition, Operation Vincenti? There are many, many unanswered questions as to why things haven't been done. The evidence speaks for itself, and I believe that the evidence should have been put into the public domain so that the public could make their own minds up in the absence of criminal proceedings. However, the Met has just battened down the hanches and refused to engage and and to this day refuses to give any reason why they're not pursuing criminal charges against people who have maliciously made false allegations against well-known people. And in terms of the conduct of officers on Midland and Vincenti, there is a culture of cover-up. You agree with Lady Britain on that? Yes, I do, because nothing's changed. I took, you know, I was ostracised for the best part of three years, and it took an independent High Court judge, Sir Richard Enriquez, to come in and point out that I'd done my job correctly. And the Met's own response there, far be it from offer an apology or try to get me into the fold, their, their response was to try and get me to do interviews as a good news story. Two former judges, Sir Richard Enriquez and Howard Riddle, have called for a new investigation into Operation Midland. Six former Home Secretaries have as well. The Home Secretary, Priti Patel, is coming under increasing pressure to take action and use her powers to restore the public's faith in the criminal justice system. What do you think she should do, Paul? I think, unfortunately, it's reached the time where between Midland and other things that have happened recently, there needs to be a proper inquiry where the evidence is heard in public, where the police are held to account and where they are forced to take measures to prevent this from ever happening again. And would you be happy to give evidence at any such inquiry about your own experience in terms of trying to raise the alert over Midland and Vincenti and how you were treated as a whistleblower within the Metropolitan Police? Absolutely. This this had an incredible, incredible impact on, on me, um, more importantly on my family and those that I love. And if that can be prevented from happening to anybody else, then that's entirely proper. Paul Settle, thank you very much for joining this Mail Plus True Crime podcast and for speaking so candidly about your experiences as a former senior officer in the Met and also the conduct you witnessed in Operation Midland and Operation Vincenti. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Mail Plus True Crime podcast with me, Stephen Wright. If you've enjoyed listening, please consider visiting mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more.